Are you Laura Palmer? Hello, you're listening to the Lodgers Sorted Cinema's Twin Peaks podcast one more time. My name is Simon Howell, and as always, I'm joined by Kate Rennebaum. Hey, everybody. Woo, we're sort of back, briefly. Sort of. We're, sort yeah. of. It's, it's the return for us, and it's not you're not getting 18 more hours out of us, sorry. Um, so yeah, we're, we're back because... Uh, Okay, so here's the deal. We are planning one more big finale episode that we think will happen, assuming all the all the cards line up or whatever mixed metaphor you want to throw out there. Um, but in the meantime, um, CBS was nice enough to send us uh, copies of The Return on blu-ray yes so thank you cbs for that as someone who lives in you know the bowels of academia and has to deal with the kind of like general sort of incompetence and like bureaucratic nightmarishness that passes for day-to-day operations in academia um dealing with cbs was like a magical wonderland of people who are really good at their jobs and are very polite and like are really lovely and wonderful and so i just wanted to really give a shout out to and it wasn't actually cbs it was a um a publicity company that i believe was handling this uh blu-ray release for cbs but they were lovely and so i really just wanted to make sure we we really emphasized how great they were and i really appreciate them sending us these sets which i think is what you were going to say yeah, well, I mean, I, I look, would I have liked to have gotten it a couple of weeks before everybody else so that I could have <laughs> gloated about it on social media? Yes. Uh, instead, I ended up getting it, like, on release day, um, which is, you know, fine, especially considering apparently yeah. Amazon has, like, run out or something. So a lot of people aren't going to be getting it until, like, the week of Christmas or later, which is really yes. bad. Yeah, especially for people who like pre-ordered them and sort of, you know, very they did their due diligence of making sure they put their names down very early on and still aren't getting copies. And then apparently stores are sold out as well. Um, this is like a story I've heard in lots of places, which, you know, on the one hand is really wonderful for the show. And I'm so glad that like Twin Peaks is getting that kind of publicity that it's like Blu-rays and DVDs are selling out all over the place and they can't keep them in stock. Like, that's awesome. But unfortunate for the poor people who didn't get copies. Um, I, I did get my copy, my reviewer copy, maybe three or four days before Simon, which was uh, good. I, I think the the story was that um, the company that was making the Blu-rays, they, they literally did not have them physically produced until maybe a week before they were supposed to go out to... Uh, stores so that so it was a tight turnaround for everybody but we did get an extra weekend so uh, olivia and i thought to ourselves that we were going to spend all last weekend just powering through and doing an 18 hour rewatch and this was like our dream we'd been we'd been holding off we hadn't been letting ourselves rewatch uh old episodes on showtime we were like we're gonna wait till the blu-rays come and we're just gonna do a full weekend marathon it's gonna be amazing and we're gonna see all these things we've never seen before and then like flash to saturday morning and the the I'm going to restrain from swearing, but the uh, tax bill news that had made it through the second round like came out that morning, thereby you know ruining 
not just our day, but like the general mood in the entire country. And so trying after that to sit down for like a nine hour marathon of like lights darkened, all the windows covered watching Twin Peaks, we kind of realized at about hour five that if we did this two days in a row, like we might kill ourselves. So we decided to not keep doing that. But we did watch um, up to episode nine on one day, which was quite an experience. Like it was it was interesting just doing that. So maybe I think next weekend we're going to watch the back half. But anyway. Yeah, having not had it as long as you, I haven't even had time for a rewatch. the 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 real purpose of this podcast episode is to dis- is mainly to discuss uh, the bonus features. Mm-hmm. So, like, fair warning if you, not that there's anything to spoil really, but you know, if you if you want to be totally, uh, you know, if if you want if you want to go in totally cold on that stuff for some reason then don't listen to this i guess um but you know some people might appreciate hearing about it in advance and i certainly i mean i think there's some there's some interesting stuff to talk about in um in the documentary content especially the before we got any further i had to mention because this happened well after we we wrapped on on the return episodes um but you uh (laughs) had a fantastic Twin Peaks Halloween costume and really calling it a costume is a disservice it was a production it was Uh, there was there was stage directions and lighting (laughs) (laughs) and music and like sound effects it's it was really something and uh you very deservedly won um uh, the, the the Twitter Twin Peaks Halloween costume contest and none other then K Mac himself slid into your DMs, which was magical. Yeah, that whole thing was um, totally bonkers, and I uh, I'm still very much enjoying all of it. It was lovely. Uh, so for people who didn't follow this when it happened, um, I, like I had been planning a Twin Peaks return themed Halloween party, um, you know, for my for my friends in Cambridge who also like the return and basically just to subject a bunch of straight like other people who aren't into the return just to subject them to a bunch of weird costumes, which was very exciting. So like I had planned on making this kind of intense costume and the and the costume was um uh Nido or uh I guess the eyeless woman, however you want to call her, or also Diane. Uh Anyway, so I had been planning on making that costume, and then we also got the idea that we should try to make the evolution of the arm, like the tree with the with the head on it. Uh, and then this got sort of more and more extreme, and then we were like, okay, now I'm going to buy red fabric to try to make curtains, and I'm going to buy the black and white zigzag fabric and like make this whole kind of like set, um, which was very fun and a necessary distraction from the general drudgery that is applying for postdocs, like, which is its own level of misery, not knowing where we're going to have to move in six months and blah, blah, blah. So this was a necessary uh, diversion from that for like three weekends. I worked on all of this stuff. Um, but I didn't have any idea that there was like this costume contest thing happening. I sort of only found out about it the night before or whatever. So got Olivia to take photos of it and put it up and and got like really amazing wonderful reactions from people online and yes a couple of days later then Kyle McLaughlin chose it as the winner and uh wrote to me and I got to have like a very brief conversation with Kyle McLaughlin which was lovely you know I, I just said like 
this is amazing. Thank you so much. And, and he responded and he, and he was like, thank you. He was like, thank you for sticking with us. And I was like, oh no, like it's just that to me had a kind of an odd ring. I was like, oh man, does it feel like people aren't sticking with, with you? I was like, I hope not. I was like, we should all be sticking with you. And I wrote back and I was like, you know, watching the return has been one of the great pleasures of my adult life. So no, no need to thank me for, uh, for sticking with it. But, um, Anyway, it was great. And then like maybe a week later, he sent uh, or his PR person sent a box full of stuff, which was the prize. And I, I'm going to try to remember all of it off the top of my head. There was a a log pillow, um, which I think was one of the things they produced for the South by Southwest uh, log, um, party thing in advance, of the, in advance of the show. So there was the log pillow. I got a mug that says I am Dougie's coffee on it. And it is like a really perfect replica of the one in the show, which is super awesome. Uh, there was a keychain that had the like great northern, um, you know, Coop's key room number on it, which was awesome. Uh, there was a print of a thing that I think Lynch drew that had sort of like a pie and a log and some other Twin Peaks thing. A couple of t-shirts and, oh, and a Coop, uh, like little doll, like one of those, um, Funko Pop head doll thing. So it was a pretty good, pretty good haul of stuff. It was great. Um, but certainly like that was great. The whole thing was insane though, Simon. I think like the Instagram post when it finished, I haven't checked it lately, but it had like 18,000 likes on it when it finished. Jesus. And on, yes. And on Twitter, there were like, I don't know, a lot. There were, I haven't checked what the Twitter number was. It wasn't as high as Instagram, but it was, it was very high. And for the two weeks after, everywhere I went, I had, I was running into people and meeting them at a conference in Toronto and they were recognizing me from Twitter, which was super crazy. Like I'm not, I've, I've never had anything like that happen to me before. And people were like, I think I saw you on my Twitter feed. Are you this person? I was like, holy crap, that's <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, it was amazing and lovely and a true highlight and very fun payoff to all of this Twin Peaks stuff. So shout out to Kyle McLaughlin for being rad and being really lovely to his fans. That rules. Everything about that rules. And you certainly <laughs> earned it. I mean, I don't think I've ever spent more than 20 minutes on a Halloween costume. So... <laughs> serious props were due and you got them so that's it's one of the few times there hasn't been a lot of justice this year so that was nice to Uh, see (laughs) that is that is nice you're right about that there's definitely not been a lot of justice so probably hence why i felt the need to like shut myself away from the world and work on a costume for three weeks because the world has been uh everything is a wonderful place lately exactly Exactly. Anyway, things yeah. that aren't so bad. Uh, so, so since people might not get their grubby paws on this set for a couple of weeks in some cases, I just wanted to mention the packaging is pretty cool. Um, it the the cover does does what I hoped it would when I saw the design, which is that it splits open in the middle of uh, in the yeah. middle of Dale's head, which is very cool. I'm not totally wild about the about the disc holder things. I would have preferred like they're yeah. in th- these like they're just like cardboard sleeves really. They're whereas like actual jewel case holdy things. I'm not I don't know what the technical term is. Um <laughs> the yeah, I don't know. Those would have been way preferable, but I mean, it's pretty yes. snazzy, I got to say. It is. I mean, I think like many people, um, I have some reservations about the cover art. I, I think it it is improved once you are holding it in your hand and it slides open, and then there's actually a third image of um, of Dougie Cooper behind it. So you get the three coops as you open it up, and I and like so that sort of improves it. But I I do I do think very much that that design of that cover reads to me like 
someone who is not a designer had a conceptual idea for what they wanted the cover to look like. And then it sort of got passed over to um, maybe a, a designer who was forced to work with that rather than letting it be something that could have been a little more designed from the beginning. I just think mm-hmm. there could have been a nicer way to do that. It, it, it To me, it's not the most aesthetically attractive cover, um, but it also isn't terrible. And it's also sort of like a very minor complaint. I mean, I think as, as you say, Simon, I agree. I do think it would have been appreciated to have real um sleeves and for people who again aren't aren't like blu-ray nerds or dvd nerds all this means is that if you have the cardboard sleeves the the disc moves around more in the pocket and it is much more likely to get scratched whereas the jewel case ones actually hold it off of the background so there's no there's much less likelihood they're going to get kind of destroyed going forward but whatever we'll just have to take really good care of of our prized possession i'm going to try not to huck it across the room too much the uh i mean Really, my my ideal like Blu-rays can't can't deliver my ultimate like my ideal Twin Peaks review experience, mm-hmm. which would be like if I could somehow get every scene, like if I if I somehow had like a like an eight disc changer, and could just like play the entire series yeah. on shuffle, um, mm-hmm. like not not just the episodes but like the scenes the sequences. Uh, mm-hmm. And then just keep it on in my house all the time, uh, like ambient music. Uh, that would be the ideal way to watch it. Um, it would have also been nice. I, I'm assuming the retail version also doesn't include um, digital versions. Uh, this th- this version didn't either, yeah. which is which is too bad. That would have been nice to have. But you know, we're we 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 have 18. Well, more like 27 hours of free entertainment. So I'm not going to complain. Yeah, no, it's true. I, I mean, and I, I kind of I get why they did that. I think probably at this point they're still fairly concerned about like piracy stuff. It, it people will put all of this up online at some point. It'll it'll get out there. But um, yeah, no, I, it's funny that you said that about the the wanting to be able to shuffle things because like when Olivia and I powered through the nine hour uh, replay, I, I have to admit like I was finding myself wishing that as well. And and part of that was just that we don't really we haven't had enough time to sort of get the distance on the original watch of the show to have sort of a new experience going back to it. Like Olivia and I were both finding that we we weren't really able to see these sort of new connections, like watching it all in a row because we were getting caught up in just like the ways we had thought about it the first time around, right? Like it, as these sort of individual parts. And I actually think like that ability to kind of shuffle the scenes a little bit would be really, would just be like amazingly wonderful. It would give you a really different um sense of how things work together in the show and I also don't think it would sort of be against what Lynch wants either I mean certainly some scenes you couldn't put in front of other ones but I I do really think there is a sense in which you could sort of pick and choose and move through the scenes differently even on the blu-ray sets and it would give you just a new vantage point on the show as a whole without kind of like deteriorating its coherency or something in an interesting way I don't know anyway all just to say I really wish I could watch it again for the first time. <laughs> this is this is what I want, is I just want the ability to watch it again for the first time over and over again. Right. Um, and to return to something that when you were talking about um, McLaughlin and the possible um, reception to, to the return, it's amusing to me or, and also a bit sad that, you know, if this, perce- if this perception exists among people who made it, that there is like this immense backlash or whatever that's funny to me because you know we we swim in these you know cinephile circles where mm-hmm. that is the utter opposite of the case mm-hmm. like where it's like so many of us have just like this is the thing that gave us life this year 
Yeah, exactly. This is the, this is like the most important thing that is going on, period, pretty much. I mean, I, for people who, well, maybe, do we want to talk about this yeah, right now? So I'm going to just get out of the let's way. Let's, let's do it. So I think yesterday, maybe yesterday or the day before or something, uh, Cahiers du Cinema, which is like the really famous film journal that's a French film journal has been around since the sixties. And like it released its yearly, its top list, top film of the year list. And Twin Peaks, the return was at the top, rightfully so, uh, in my opinion, but, and this has been a thing all over the place. Lots of people have been putting it on, on their lists, um, whether they are talking about movies or television. And this has been a debate, like a massive kind of debate on on Twitter for people who aren't part of uh, film nerd Twitter. There has been a lot of of fighting uh, amongst people about whether it is acceptable to put Twin Peaks The Return on top like year end movie lists because it is, you know, ostensibly a television show. And the amount of energy that's gotten expended on this debate on Twitter is is quite something. Um, I don't know. I, I was saying to Simon before this started. I I have sympathy with television critics who who feel a little ter- territorial around the idea that like now that television now that there's this television show that has sort of like has been taken up so universally as a kind of like beloved critical object that people feel like they can just take that away from television and name it film, um, I get why television critics might be a little apprehensive about that because, you know, there's a longer history of television not really being given the same, like, cultural credit, the same kind of cultural capital that films get. So I get their frustration around that. I do. But at the same time, these are also just, like, year-end lists that people are often just making for their own, like, fun a lot of the time. And it it just seems to me that I'm not entirely sure why there has to be so much, like like anger and vehemence expended over this kind of stuff. I mean, the show is calling itself both a movie and a TV show, so I'm not really sure why critics can't do the same thing, especially when we live in an era when um, so many films that come out in the theater are also playing on Netflix that same day. Like, you know, it's just these boundaries are not quite what they used to be. And while I understand why people are very, like, passionate about it, my I'm kind of agnostic. I'm like, I want to call it a movie and I want to call it a TV show. Like, I, I think it's both things. I think it should get credit as both. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't... Uh, my favorite response to all this is, I think it was Nick Pinkerton who um, who tweeted about what he calls the Hoberman rule. Um, which is that whenever anyone has a movies versus TV debate, he he pulls up Jay Haberman's best of list from 1986. Have you seen this? <laughs> no, I haven't. Uh, so in 1986, um, Haberman published his top 10 list and I think the village voice and he put game six of the world series on it. <laughs> which... That's amazing. <laughs> And, you know, that was uh, that was 31 years ago. So it's like we should have settled this by now. <laughs> um, yes, that is probably true. Um, I just like I don't know. I don't think it would I don't think that argument would work for every show. I mean, as, as TV critics have also pointed out, there are lots of television scenarios where the makers of the television show have been saying, oh, I'm actually making a mini movie or this is like many movies or so, you know, like that's not that Lynch is not the first person to say that that kind of rhetoric has been around before. But that being said, it's like, I think Twin Peaks is maybe slightly in a different category where it feels like it is actually doing that. I mean, it feels like it is both a television show and operating at the level of cinema. I don't think calling it cinema 
means that we're somehow exempting it from having an influence on television and playing a role in television and being television. I mean, I think it's both. I think that is what it is doing that's so radical is showing that you could actually basically be operating at both levels at the same time. And and I don't mean to degrade cinema. Like, I, of course, cinema, you need a theatrical experience. But I think it really says something that literally every cinephile I know would give their right arm to be able to watch The Return on a big screen. Like, Olivia and I would... I, I can't even tell you, like, what we would do to be able to make that happen. I have been talking to every theater person and film programmer I know, being like, when are you going to put this on a big screen? And, and of course, as people will tell you, it's, it's tricky because... Um, even though all of the people who are associated with the return, like Sabrina Sutherland and Lynch and everybody, they are totally happy to have it play on a big screen. They want to have it play on big screens. But television rights and licensing are considerably more complicated than film licensing because you often have like multiple, multiple uh, companies who have stakes in a show and have money and need like approval and blah, blah, blah. So it's often much more difficult to show things like the return on big screens, which is why it may not happen the way that people want it to happen. And, and also like you can you can thread all those loopholes. And then you still have to find a way to, to, to program 18 hours of content. Exactly. Like, to exactly. exhibit that. I don't really talk to a lot of TV critics, but I would imagine that if I was still in those circles, my argument would be, uh, or rather my frustration would be, you know, there, there's, there's, I don't, it wasn't a great television year, I don't think, to be perfectly honest, but. Yeah. Well, except for Leftovers. Even, Leftovers was the, yeah. Leftovers was great. Um, and like Leftovers and Twin Peaks and uh, and a lot of people have cited, uh, especially the final episode of um, Nathan For You as well. Oh, Nathan For um, You, yeah. Which was wonderful um, and like a whole other case. But like even among shows that are generally considered to be good or very good, there is a lot of homogeneity in terms of storytelling, in terms of... Um, there's just there's not a lot of mold breaking going on, even like among shows that are like generally considered to be good or, or, or great. And like so. So if a show comes along and really breaks the rules and then, like you know, and then cinema cinema tries to claim it, it's like, oh, it's like it's 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 like it's saying, you know, like the, the medium can only be this. Um, it can only be this sort of connect the dot storytelling um that we're getting from you know basically I, I i'm not gonna be you know glib or dismissive and say everything else but there's like you know there's there's a clear degree of separation here yeah which anyway. is fair enough i think that that makes sense yeah the so yeah i guess we should talk about the actual set hey let's we should we should do that <laughs> um so let's as do it if, if if you've if you've looked so like full disclosure, I know that we haven't gone through everything yet. I know that we haven't um, we haven't watched the Comic Con panel, which I believe is moderated by Damon Lindelof. Yes, yeah, it is. Um, I'm actually looking forward to that, but I didn't Me too. have time I, I as well, to. Yeah. Didn't have time to get to that because I was a little busy with the four hours and fifty one minutes um, <laughs> that that which is really a lot. Um, that makes up the the ten part documentary um, by Jason S, who shot uh, the Art Life, which I actually still have not seen. Oh, uh, he as did. Well as Jason the... S shot the Art Life. I really, I did not know that. Was he? Yep. Like you, you just mean he was like the DP, or he he wasn't the director yeah. though, right? No, he okay. was not. He uh, okay. like he literally shot it. He was. I will mm. pull up the exact credit. 
Um, he did. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I did, he did the cinematography on um, okay. on the art life. So now. Oh, I didn't know. know that though. That's great. Hmm. That is the major thing. There's also, of course, the 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 two half hour um, shorts that Richard Bamer shot uh, that are, I believe, mm-hmm. exclusive to the Blu-ray. Yeah, that they're exclusive to the Blu-ray, as are uh, the third, like thirty minute film um, by, and I should have his name here, but it's not right in front of me, unfortunately. By another kind of uh, special features director who has directed special features on other things recently. Um, oh, I don't have his name here. Oh, here it is. Charles de, Charles de Lazarica, Lazarica? I don't know how you pronounce that, but uh, which is this, the feature of Very Lovely Dream, One, win, one Week in Twin Peaks. And that's the one where they um, go... They He basically shoots a bunch of stuff as they return to the town of Twin Peaks and, sh- and shoot a series of stuff in, in like North End Washington and in the sheriff's station there, uh, which is a really nice uh, nice featurette for sure. I mean the, the the main thing that I, I will be of interest to people is clearly the this massive um ten part doc where um the aforementioned Jason S sort of uh, follows around the, the so for anyone who is like I'm going to just tell you things that you're not getting just so just so we're clear like and most of you will know this already just from having watched the return but like for anyone who's hoping for um elucidation on the themes of the return or like clarification about um maybe some specific production questions they had chances are like you're not gonna get what you're looking for um what you do get is i mean i would just like to say that we were right because Mm -hmm. all those times that we were talking about um the way that lynch um makes stuff which is this this combination of this tactility as well as um, that sort of um, that sort of dream logic stuff that he's uh, that he's famous for did sort of that combination of uh, of craftsman and dreamer like that is one hundred percent on display in like almost every frame of this thing. Yes, uh, that is very true, and I, and. <sighs> Oh man, there's a lot to dig into here, like how we even want to kind of talk about these. Because I think to build on maybe what you're saying there as well, you, you can kind of talk about the sort of overall structure of what uh, Jason S. And, and and there's like a number of kind of um, co-makers in there whose names I unfortunately don't have in front of me either. But you can tell they were very heavily involved in putting everything together. And these are the people who like wrote the narration and did the score, the scores for these um Pieces. I think it was a team of, of three. It was Jason S. and two other people. Uh, anyway, yeah. so there, there's this sort of like the structure of these pieces that they've put together. And we can dig into more how they put it together. Because I think that's something that I just sort of wanted to make sure I said, which is I think sometimes people, it's easy enough to think that like behind the scenes documentaries are just you know, it's just the footage like transparently being put in front of you. And it's great that they captured this footage and you're just sort of seeing it. And that's a fallacy. I mean, it's like there are bad and boring making of documentaries and there are really good, fascinating, interesting making of documentaries. And this one is very much a very good, fascinating, interesting one. And a lot of that is like, there's some real intelligence and creativity in terms of how they are structuring this clearly like huge amount of material that Jason has shot, like how they are structuring it and putting it together in a really kind of like patterned, coherent, but interesting way. And we can talk about more what that is and how he does that. But, but the framing devices here for each of these short films are these sort of like kind of semi ethereal, um, 
opening gambits that happen over each ones, which, which usually involves um, some kind of like treated footage of one of the landscapes that they're shooting in. So if they're in, in Las Vegas or whatever, there's footage of like a landscape in Las Vegas that's been treated to look like it's kind of 18 millimeter or 16 millimeter film. Um, on the one hand, and then often there will be a drone photography of landscapes. So a drone kind of moving through a landscape. And you can tell if it's a drone because the shots are uncannily perfect. Like they look, they look digital in the sense that, um, you know, a, a mechanical machine wouldn't be able to get that level of like fluidness through a space, but a, um, a drone can when it films. So anyway, so it opens with shots like these, and then there's this sort of narration that's built over top of it. And the, the narration, I think as you were trying to get out there with there, Simon, like it, it kind of mirrors and extends what's going on with Lynch's personality, where you have this movement between this, this like ethereal, dreamy, otherworldly space, and then you go right into these sequences with Lynch like on the ground directing people in this kind of very straightforward like you know non-conceptual sort of way like often Lynch is literally just telling people what the scene is going to entail <laughs> like at length which is a really fascinating kind of comparison and I have more things to say about the narration but does that sort of open up some of the things you were thinking about Simon yeah um the narration is real weird <laughs> like <laughs> I, I I feel like it almost it almost goes without saying for a Lynch thing, but it's it's sort of interesting to watch these to to see these like these non Lynch people um, sort of d- do their take on like what is Lynchian while while documenting him and his process and and the filming. The uh, I I had a few sort of like observations about the filming that just things that kept popping into my mind while I was watching it, which is like the first one that, that kept coming to me was like to, to be an actor on this thing and like to do your bit and then you're done. And then to try, like, I just imagine that the, like and it, this really rings true with, um, I think it was someone early on said, well, the only people who read all this are like Frost and Lynch and, um, and Sabrina Sutherland and McLaughlin. And that's it. And you really, you feel that, while you're watching it, while you're watching this this set of documentaries, because you just imagine, okay, what if I were an actor on this? What what would I think this was? Like, what what how would I imagine the shape this was going to take? And the, and truthfully, you'd have absolutely no goddamn idea. It's just it's it's just this it's it's presented at the as this massive set of just like of discrete uh, environments and emotions and. And uh, which I suppose is, you know, true of a lot of projects, but because of of the way this was just like this massive thing filmed in one go um, and there are specific actors who like who they don't have a lot of time with. And there are there are stretches where um, where Lynch is, is visibly frustrated with and audibly frustrated with um, with the pr- constraints of the production Um which is interesting, and like I wasn't wasn't necessarily expecting to see in a in a, 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 a in like a DVD bonus feature. Um, but anyway, I'm just I just I, I kept thinking about what it would be like to be like one of these people who's there for two, three, four scenes, and just to, and like what their what their perception of this process was like. And I, in in a sense, like you 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 almost long for those like conventional talking head segments. Um, that you would get in like sort of a more standard feature app, because I really want to know what they were thinking um, as, as this was all unfolding or not unfolding. 
Well, that's interesting too, because like, yeah, we started, uh, you know, when we got the set after we did our nine-hour rewatch, the 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 impressions set, as they're called, this set of the Jason S. films impressions. Um, those were the ones that we first started watching, and. There is a really fa- like I wish I'd had time to watch them all twice honestly because there is a there's a fascinating sense when you start watching them that as you say like there aren't talking heads there isn't really any indication of like what you are going to get going forward at, at a certain point you start to figure out that like the structure that you're getting is what most of these are going to consist in and so you can kind of settle into it but all you're thinking is like, man, which actors are we going to get to see? Like, which scenes are we going to get to see? What are we going to get to see Lynch direct? Like, it, there is a sense in which you're really um, caught up, like, just wondering what these things are going to reveal to you. That it's, it's for me, I got very focused on a lot of that. And so I, I feel like I missed some of the kind of, like, finer nuanced details of, of these scenes that are unfolding in front of you. And I really am looking forward to, go back and, to go, going back and watching them again. Um, but yeah, anyway, so I, I do think there is a sense in which that kind of like <laughs> took so much of my attention. And and one of the things I will mention is like, once you start getting into this, I, I was wondering, for example, like, are we going to get shots of him directing Catherine Coulson? Or are we going to get shots of him directing like Warren Frost? Or, and, and, and I was kind of trepidatious about some of that, actually. I was like, I, I was like, I, this, as you say something like the, the behind the scenes stuff, it's giving you more access than you expect in, in kind of odd ways. Like I, you know, anybody who knows Lynch knows that he's kind of resistant to this kind of stuff, like giving people this much of a, of a view into certain elements of, of how he, he does what he does. And so, so this is a shock anyway. And then you're sort of not sure how much you're going to get. And what I was like, maybe we're going to get these sort of very intimate scenes between Lynch and people. I, I was worried that it was going to be hard for them to avoid, um, missteps with that. And, and then I was, so that I was actually kind of relieved when we didn't get any of that stuff. By and large, these documentaries avoid, avoid those kind of encounters, I think, between Lynch and people that would have been so charged that seeing it, I think, would have been, would have felt like an uh, imposition on the private relationship that Lynch has with those people. And so I, I really appreciate, actually, that the, the DVDs kind of stay out of that to a certain extent. But that being said, there are other areas where it goes much further than you expect. Um, and I think the one that people have commented a lot already in terms of this, like in just reviews that I've read online about it, is um, the fact that we get to see Lynch be angry so often is a really unusual thing and, and not maybe exactly what you would expect from this kind of thing. Were you uh, surprised by the Lynch being angry stuff? Um I mean, not really. I mean, like, he's not pulling a David O. Russell in here. Like, yeah, exactly. You know, he he has disagree. He has like rational disagreements with about like concrete elements of the production and like scheduling. And um, you know, there's there's a memorable sequence where he doesn't get the specific um, like. Uh, we know that that it's not a plaster of Paris because that's what he gets. It's called. It's called fix fix it fix it all is what he wants. Fix it all, and he <laughs> yeah. doesn't get it. Um, yeah, like that's that's quite memorable. Um, but like, there's really like honestly, like his standards, like our standards of Lynch being mad, like are probably not like they they don't really rate on the Hollywood scale of like <laughs> megalomaniacal directors of any kind. Um, the when you were talking about charged interactions, um, like you're right, we don't get anything with Coulson or Warren Frost, which is probably good. Um, but man, we do get one very char- I thought very charged sequence of um, of Lynch and Cheryl and Fenn hanging out and chain smoking <laughs> and talking about 
uh, talking about her scenes, but also she makes a reference to um, to when she quote gave him the business over the what uh, over I assume the original draft of her scenes, and like man, <laughs> there is a lot going on in that sequence. It's true. Well, it seems like some of that has become clearer since uh, the final dossier came out, right? I mean, this idea that there were. I, well, yeah, it's complicated, but like that the, they had written a different version of her um, scenarios, basically, that, that was connected to, I think, the stuff that Frost covers in the final dossier, these like intervening years between the coma and then her life now and sort of what's happened to her in this town. And my understanding is that Sherilyn Fenn was not happy with that stuff. And so they she put a lot of pressure on them to rewrite it. And this is sort of why Lynch ended up largely rewriting Audrey's scenes while they were shooting. And so Mark Frost uh, has said in different interviews that he sort of gave his blessing to the rewrite. He thought it was better than what they'd originally come up with. And so they, they rewrote it. Um, and this is like scuttlebutt that we maybe know from people who were involved in the shoot, but it, it does seem like in the original version, she had more screen time. Like when it was the different uh, scenarios, she was supposed to film more scenes, but I think everyone agrees that they just weren't as good. So it was sort of this idea that like we ended up with less Audrey, but that the Audrey stuff was, was concentratedly much more interesting as a result. And so... Mm-hmm. That's super cool. But it is interesting to see Sherilyn Fenn like hint at that and to see it make its way into this set is, is really interesting as well. Yeah. Um, and they yeah. just like they're all this all the scenes like it's 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 also wild to watch like Lynch with new actors versus Lynch with actors who he's been working with for a long time. Uh, one of my favorite Lynch ticks that I didn't know about um, is uh, like until I watch this is the first time he meets it seems like every time he meets a new actor for the first time and he looks at them and they look like he, th- this is what I think happens and th- and they look like he expects and so then he says good deal <laughs> <laughs> which I just love for some reason <laughs> a good deal or a, what's the other one I think he says great great to see you great to see you Great love it. Good deal. Great to see you. Watching this um set, like Lynch Lynch physically reminds me very much of like my grandfather who is no longer alive, but there is something very endearing about like you know, watching Lynch be excited and like be happy on this set is uh, is brings me such joy like I, I just to see his face light up when he gets to see sets that have been made like to bring you know this world that's in his head like bring it out into the world it it's just gives me such joy and like to see him be very happy to engage these like actors who are you know designed and wearing these outfits that he's chosen and everything it just like I love it 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 makes me very happy to see him be excited or or see him be very kind of like emotionally involved with sets with um scenes that he's directing there are a couple of scenes that he's directing where he is he's emoting as much as the actors if not more like behind the um the video screen, which is kind of amazing, like to watch Lynch be that intensely engaged with what's going on in front of the camera is, I just think it must be exhausting work. Like this direct, not just organizing a set like that, but being that kind of emotionally engaged and that, that on and that directive and that responsive for hours at a time. Like as you know, 70 years old, like I, it's impressive that that Lynch is doing that at the pace and scale they were doing that with the show. So anyway. Yeah. And it's, it's also interesting to watch him work in this mode where like clearly they have a lot to do and they don't have Mm -hmm. like, I don't, I forget exactly how long the shoot was. 
Um, I think it was 60 days, 60 days is, total. That's not Crazy. a lot. That's no. really not a lot. So, just, so, just so people in the audience have a general idea, my understanding is that 60 days is about average shooting length for a feature length film. So for an hour and a half long film, you'd have 60 days. These guys had 60 days to produce 18 hours, well, 17 hours technically, but 18 hours of television, which is crazy. Like that is crazy. And I I actually, and I think this is one of the other really fascinating things about these, these behind the scenes documentaries is, um, yeah, how much they reveal for, you know, maybe fans who are fans and are watching these special features, but weren't that engaged with all of the kind of behind the scenes money talk about what was going on here. And the idea that, you know, when the show was given the green light to go up to 18 episodes from nine, they didn't get any extra money. It was the same budget as the nine episode scenario. So they're having to like pay for everything. This is part of why the shoot had to be so tight was so that they would have money to cover all this stuff and pay all the actors and everybody that they needed to pay. And you can regularly see Lynch becoming frustrated, as you said earlier, because of this stuff specifically. And I, and I think this is like an interesting, we can always come back to this question about like the psychology of Lynch and his relationship to anger. Cause I don't think it's as, I, I get kind of frustrated when people are like, oh, Lynch is this Zen guy and how you could, and he's this Midwesterner. And I'm like, that's not, has that's like a story that has very little to do with what the guy is actually like. But anyway, um. But you can tell here that, like, specifically why he is getting frustrated and when he loses it occasionally is because he's having to work under these constraints that are really not the ways in which he wants to work. And there's, like, a really interesting uh, scene towards the end in one of these production meetings where he kind of loses it on, it sounds like Sabrina Sutherland and his first AD um, director guy, I think Scott Cameron, he kind of loses it on them and he, and he's so frustrated that like they have their own sets and so they should have more time in in the sheriff's office scene and they don't and this is because they don't have money to pay a certain actor to stay for longer and you know Lynch is like I'm never working like this again this is horrible like and and he's swearing a lot and he's really upset and he's like this gives me no time to sort of let things breathe and get creative and get dreamy as he calls it which is a great way to describe it and it's I don't know it's it's it, it I don't know I found all of that very enlightening to think about how those kinds of frameworks are at play in, you know, the aspects of the show that, that maybe people were less than thrilled with all the time. Like that there were certain scenes that did, you know, where people were claiming things didn't feel hundred percent figured out or, and we should, maybe we can talk about this when we do our next episode with our guests or something, but there was a really fascinating point in the, in the documentary here where Lynch hints at the fact that there is a scene in the sheriff station that he still hasn't figured out he doesn't know what to do with he hasn't written it down yet and he's been thinking about it forever and he still hasn't been able to figure it out and you know Olivia and I are like maybe that's the green glove scene like the showdown with Bob at the end because that still feels like it and it's like this idea that Lynch really didn't have time or resources or the ability to play as much as he would like to get where he wanted to go the way that he would want to on his own. You know what I mean? And, and there are good things about that too. I, I get like having constraints is necessary and important. So I don't mean to say just Lynch should get whatever he wants, but it was a really fascinating angle on some of those questions, I think. Now I'm just imagining like David Lynch in Synecdoche, New York, getting his genius grant to build an arc or whatever. <laughs> and just, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't picture that ending well. So I think constraints are good. The um, yes. and speaking of constraints, like there's another very specific uh, stretch where it becomes clear that they're not going to have uh, Miguel Ferrer for very long. I think they yeah. have a week with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't clear to me, w- was that because of 
was that a scheduling issue or was that a health issue? No, I don't think it was a health issue. They they say explicitly that he had accepted uh, a different role in another television show. And I think you could tell there was some anger maybe against him, actually, because he had done this. Not from Lynch, but you could tell there was rumblings among the crew or something. Right, so this yeah. is why Lynch is and having to calm them down. And he specifically is like, I'm not recasting this. Like, we're yeah. make it work. And, um, and that made me think about Krista Bell because she, she doesn't make – she only appears like once or twice in the five hours – but if Ferrer is only on set for a week, like almost all of her scenes are with Albert. So that means that like all those things we said before about how she's like an inexperienced actor, like working for the first time in a Lynch production. And that's insane. Like add to that the fact that she probably ended up having to do a lot of that in like an extremely condensed time span. It's throwing that out there. It's true. Um, and, and as well, the idea that, like, with the tight shooting schedule, they just had less space for takes, too. I mean, it, there are a couple of scenes where you get the sense that they are doing, like, two takes <laughs> for some of the stuff that they're yeah. shooting. And, and, and like, I think in some scenarios, that's a good thing. Like, in some scenarios, it takes pressure off of actors who feel like, you know, with the rise of digital shooting, it's like now it's can be common in some scenarios to have to do an insane number of takes or something. And like, there's a great scene where um, Michael Sarah shows up for his his thing as Wally Brando in, and I think this is in the the Lazarica documentary. And and Lucy is saying, you know, you could tell Sarah like thought they were they were going to have to do sort of ten, twelve takes of his whole speech, and he goes through it once, and Lynch is like. Michael, do you have one more in you? And Michael is like, only one more? Like, yeah. And so he was thrilled that he only had to do two takes of this. Like, he was so happy. So there, you know, it goes both ways. But I do think that this idea that you you might get you might get two two to maybe not that many more takes for certain shots, like that that would definitely affect a pace of an actor who's sort of learning to get their feet under them in this kind of scenario too, for sure. Yeah. What what I also think is interesting is what's not in this. Like, this is a massive. Uh, yes. documentary project and yet um mark frost is like is he does he even make an appearance he does not really you might be seeing him once or twice briefly in the impressions once he shows up more in the other ones he shows up in both the beamer films and um the lazarica right, yeah. one he has a little bit of presence there but he's not really in the impressions once at all yeah yeah um so there's there's no there's not a lot of frost there is i mean the the docs are restricted to the shooting process. So we don't get any sense of uh, what I would have loved to have seen some stuff with Dwayne Dunham, uh, dealing with <laughs> like piecing this massive project together. Um, and them working on the, on the, um, on the post effects mm-hmm. and things like that. I would have loved more about, um, the music supervision and like the, the, uh, the roadhouse and all that. Um, so even with like this, something like like eight, nine hours of bonus content, some of which, as I said, we haven't actually had a chance to watch yet, it still feels like it's barely scratching the surface of just like how this came together. No, I, it's totally true. And it's so funny to me that like <laughs> you get to the end of uh, the, the f- what is it, four and a half hours or something of the four hours um, and 51 minutes, according to my four hours uh, and 51, 51 yeah. minutes of the impressions one. And like I get to the end and I just was like, 
how, how, like, I'm, like, angry at it that there isn't more of it. You know, there's something so funny about the idea of showing us so much of this, um, this background process, and you're just left feeling at the end, like, holy man, Jason S. must have so much more footage, and, like, why can you not just give it all to me? <laughs> you know, like, I just, like, I just want, I just want, like, perfect transcendental access to everything that happened, which is, of course, insane, but there is something very funny about, I, I actually, I think that's maybe worth pointing out. Like, I like that about those documentaries that they don't they don't use those kind of like formal um conventions that that pretend as if as if this behind the scenes thing is quote giving you everything you need to know about behind the scenes as if it's giving you this kind of perfect access where everything is being wrapped up and packaged in like talking heads and in on-screen text that like tells you where things are and what the timeline is you know you don't get any of that in this so like you you often feel like you're you're kind of being led into these like really gorgeous amazing moments that are unfolding between Lynch and people um or really just fascinating moments but you often you don't know where you are like it's it's never clear when any of these things are really happening in relation to anything else um and you and you always and this is something else that I really like formally about the um about the impression set is that the Jason S will often really just train the camera on Lynch. And so you see Lynch's face, you see his reactions to other people, but you're often missing key information about who the other figures are in the room, like who Lynch is talking to, who, what else is happening. And there's some amazing, there's a scene where like Lynch yells at people for being in a rehearsal space when he's, he like doesn't want them there and he's annoyed that they're in there. And it seems like he yells at Peter Deming too. He's like, you shouldn't be in here either. And he like kicks his DP out of the room, but you can't be a hundred percent sure because you can't tell who is off camera. But like, you know, these kinds of things, it it creates like a real um, spectatorial interest, I think, this idea that, again, these impressions documentary, it refuses to give you the idea that you have perfect access to some behind the scenes thing. It feels very much like you have a have a limited but like, you know, kind of irreplaceable viewpoint on it, I guess. Yeah. And there's also an interesting balance between like we get Lynch, sort of the taskmaster, the the hands-on director who like really wants to who really wants to produce certain effects in this very limited time you know in in effects in in every sense um but then also like whenever we i think we see like almost every major performer's rap like i th- yes there is yeah. at least yeah. there's like eight or nine not only individual actors but each mclaughlin character gets their own rap <laughs> That was great. Oh, especially when it comes after um, McLaughlin's speech to Lynch at the end. You, you get like when McLaughlin gets his real rap, he gives this sort of speech to Lynch in front of a bunch of the crew. And like, I'm not going to lie, I got a little teary. It was it was a pretty affecting speech. And then you go to this kind of joke of, of, of uh, David Lynch giving every character of McLaughlin's a rap, which was really funny. But anyway. Obviously, like, we, we you're never going to get, like you said, the complete picture. But I do think that like and I, I haven't seen the art life, so I can't speak to this. But I, I, I think you do get, if nothing else, you really do get a, a, a what seems to be a fairly complete idea of what it is like to work for Lynch and to work with him. At least on this kind of project, where there are, are constraints, you, you get you get an impression of of what he is like as a as as a person who labors on film. Um, which is cool, which is like, and you know, it's, and you might think you don't need five hours for that, but we disagree. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I also think, and I think that's an important point to make too, is that I think you get a sense of what Lynch is like working on this kind of project in this thing. 
you know, the way Lynch works, and this is what it's, one of the things that's so fascinating about him, is that, like, I think his modes are very different depending on what the constraints are like and what the environment is like. And I, if you watch, there's there's some really in-depth, um, I think it's quite long, I think it's like an hour, hour and some, there's a, there's a really fascinating making of, similarly making of thing on uh, the Inland Empire uh, DVD sets, where you see basically some of the same things we see here, but more so. Like, for example, in the, in the return um, uh, impression set, you get things like Lynch, you know, the, when they're shooting one part of the sheriff's station and there's the hole in the ground where, I think it's the Bob Bubble or a Flame or something comes out of it, and Lynch is like, go get me 12 eggs and some uh, black cream paint, corn. and then like, cream corn, and then they make this like, incredibly disgusting mess all around the hole, and literally, Simon, all I could think at the end of that was, which poor, like, set PA has the job of having to clean up, like, rotten egg goo off the floor later? <laughs> I was like, oh my god. But anyway, um, so, you know, so there's that part of it. But then, like, and they do that really quickly and they get it perfect and blah, blah, blah. But then, um, you know, on the Inland Empire ones, you'll see Lynch spending, like, I don't know, an hour on his own completely working on a light fixture that he like wants to have a very specific way and so he's going to build like the electrical wiring of the light fixture himself and blah 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 and you know that's the kind of stuff that he can't do in the return like you see him making things a little bit but clearly the pressure is there that prevents him from being able to do that so anyway so so there's some fascinating stuff there as well for sure um another thing just one more thing that you don't get any of in this documentary and uh, and also again, this is part of part and parcel with like the other stuff that you don't see, sort of by necessity. There's absolutely nothing about part eight. There's I well, I would have. I you see, loved... you see some of the sequences that are being filmed. Like you see some part eight sequences being filmed. There's the radio station, and there is. Oh um, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. But and the fireman's palace. You see some stuff in the fireman's palace, but we get nothing about the post production stuff, which is what I wanted. You're that's yeah. what I wanted. But anyway, keep going. Yeah, no, like it's for anyone. Like, again, anyone who is hoping for, I, I would have loved, there's a lot of stuff even in, like, pre-production that I would have loved. Like, people reacting to stuff, just, like, getting script pages, um, things like that, and just reckoning with, with what, like, again, I could have used another, like, I, I, ideally, I would have another five-hour one for pre-production and another one for post-production. If I had that, I could stop complaining. I don't know. I feel like I feel like none of it would be enough. I feel like in, until I literally get to have been on the set, until someone can transport me back in time and put me on the set for the entire shoot, I will not. I will not be entirely satisfied. But um, I mean, and and there are other things that we don't get here, right? Like there are, there are many swaths of of actors that we don't get involved in yeah. this at all. Like for example, um, Matchkin Amick turns up uh, once in the background. She's standing behind Lynch, watching him direct something in the red room. But you don't see any of her sequence. We don't see like Amanda Seyfried, nothing with um oh creepy white faced dude. Steven, what's his name? Um oh uh, Becky's guy. Jones. Caleb Landry Jones. Um you know, like n- none of that kind of stuff. Nothing with Big Ed Hurley, nothing with Norma. Uh not I don't think we see anything really with uh uh sorry, Dr. Amp either. Um Jacoby. Jacoby. Yeah. You know, Harry Dean Stanton as well. And Harry Dean Stanton for me was one of those people where I was I was again. I was a little worried that that might feel impersonal or something. Or not impersonal. Feel uh, impolite, impolitic to be that close to him. But but other than that, I anyway. So there were a lot of people here that there might have been more of. And the other thing that I was kind of fascinated by was how little how little McLaughlin is actually in these impressions. Yeah, that's ones. true. I had that thought like, about three quarters of the way through. 
Yeah, like you're kind of expecting that because he's like literally in the, you know, he's in 30 to 80% of every episode that he is going to to have a kind of lot of presence on these documentaries. And he's he's really not in very many of them. Like you see him kind of engaging with Lynch a little bit before and after scenes start, but there's almost no, se- there's I think no sequences of Lynch directing him uh, intensively. But there is some of that in both the Beamer short and the Lazarico one. You get some kind of extensive back and forth with McLaughlin there. Um, yeah. But anyway, I just thought that was fascinating. The uh, well, and also like the the the, the docs really center Lynch in all of this, right? Yes. Like it's you you do you get to you get to see people like Sabrina Sutherland and, and his his ads etc. Sort of on the periphery. But like it's almost a joke in in the documentary where um, in the narration um, they, they're talking about they, they briefly talk about Sabrina and they're like, "What does she do?" <laughs> it's like, it's, and it's almost a joke because we really don't get a good sense of of her job, which is clearly like extremely important and like that she's obviously like working her ass off behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, but we really don't get to see a lot of that, and that's true of basically. Of like the vast majority of his collaborators. Yeah, that is true. I mean, you, I think you get a bit of you get surprisingly maybe a bit of a sense of the first AD's job. I, I think the first AD actually comes out as like pretty present here in, in terms yeah. of basically having to be the one that like helps get Lynch's vision out into the world according to the constraints of what's going on. And and I and I think this is sort of fascinating too. Again, to talk about like the way that that this Jason S guy and, and his collaborators structure the stru- structure, the overall sense of these documentaries, which is that again, it opens with the kind of dreamy narration stuff. And then we will go into like longish sequences of Lynch directing individuals. And these are often intercut with um, snippets from a production meeting. And it, and it's difficult to tell, like, you know, Olivier's guess was this, that this was just one long production meeting that had happened early on in the shoot, like, you know, maybe weeks before or often than what we're seeing later. But like, so this is one long prolonged thing where they're going through the script, um, basically scene by scene and, and setting up the shooting schedule and figuring out how many days can be given to which uh, types of shoots and like which, which, how many pages of the scene for blah, 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 whatever. So they're figuring all this stuff out. And it's quite fascinating because again, the camera's trained on Lynch through all of it. And, and it serves a kind of, um, basic informational purpose for the documentary. So Lynch will be saying, you know, oh, we need to do this scene here and this is what happens in this scene. And then we go watch him direct it. So there's that kind of element of it. But there is also the element in which, you know, this is Lynch sort of pushing out what he would just like to have things, how he would like things to go. And then almost inevitably you get Sabrina Sutherland and the first AD being like, well, we actually can't shoot that many days there we actually can't have that set at that specific time or we have to remember that jennifer jason lee has to leave and like there's just something really fascinating there about like them kind of having to be these sort of necessary constraints on him and like often having to take the brunt of lynch's anger about certain things i I don't know i found all of that like quite fascinating yeah and again like i don't want to overstate the the anger aspect because like it's a lot of the frustrations to me like seemed pretty pretty reasonable considering like the 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 ambition of the project versus like the incredibly um modest amount of of resources they clearly had to work with um yeah and like nothing in the documentary strikes me as like like outright abusive or anything or like even close to that line it's just like pretty standard work frustration really oh yeah no totally no i don't i don't i certainly don't mean to paint a picture of him as like out of control or something it's not that i i, I just think that it's more I personally find it fascinating because I think those those moments feel like 
some of the rare moments when <laughs> you maybe get a sense of the side of Lynch that he is very careful to curate to keep yeah. out of public view. And so for me, I actually find that really fascinating. Like he, he, you know, we all have this picture of him as this sort of like, um, again, the kind of Midwesterner guy who, who's very polite and like very happy and very like enthusiastic and sort of childlike in certain scenarios and wants to make things a certain way and is very excited about it. That's like a pretty common understanding of him. What I find fascinating is when you get a scene, like when they're shooting the, um, uh, Robert Nepper and, and Candy scene where she hits him with the remote control, which is hilarious to watch yeah. them film that. But she hits him with the remote control. And um, some the behind, you see Lynch directing this through the video um, set. And behind him, there is, uh, again, what you're guessing is Sabrina Sutherland and, and the first AD. And somebody says something like, well, do you want to get a close-up? And somebody else says, yeah, we should definitely get a close-up. And I think it's Sabrina Sutherland says something like, well, yeah, that way, you know, we could make the scene shorter. Like, and... Lynch just like mm, yeah right like he he catches this and he he like he goes from being seemingly kind of mellow although probably very focused seemingly mellow into like he is really angry about this idea that people are trying to sort of manage this process away from you know, like, away from being challenging, basically. Like, he's like, I mean, I'm not going to repeat the line for line because he swears very heavily in it, but he's like, who gives a, you know, blanking blank about how long the scene is? Like, stop trying to make that a, a thing. Like, I don't care, and you shouldn't care either. And it's like, you're really clearly getting, like, a window into Lynch's uh, maybe unfiltered thoughts about, like, how people should be reacting to these long scenes that he presents to them in a way that I think is very different than you get in, like, a Lynch interview or something. Yeah, and that sequence, like, uh, uh, watching him film that is, like, the clearest example of, like, what Lynch brings to the table, I think, because, like, having seen it, we know how that scene turns out, and it's, like, one of the, like, most, like, one of the most effective and funniest uses of this sort of prolonged moment in the entire show, so, like, you know, he's right. <laughs> he's... He's he is correct. He is he's correct to be suspicious about how how the scene is being handled, and like ultimately he's he's vindicated. People might not feel that way about like every single production choice, like as as it turned out, but I think that one was definitely um, definitely unassailable. Hey, remember when we said we weren't going to get an hour out of this? <laughs> I know, and I have like at least one or two more points I want to make, but um, but I, the stuff I kind of wanted to talk about was more generally like the. Jason S and the other people's work in terms of structuring stuff here overall. So, uh, do you oh, have yeah. any? Do we have any other stuff we want to cover about uh, about Lynch and the and what we see in the um, in the shoot itself? No, I mean I think you're you're dead on about how like this. And again, it's 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 interesting to me that they that 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 this is included in the set mm -hmm. and like this that this stuff that runs counter to um, to Lynch the brand or whatever um lynch the guy who like who like sells you c coffee and stuff like yeah this this is not like we we, we in the there's an early sequence where and i think it's in in the impressions where um jerry horn um who, yeah. what's the actor's name anyway um where he's he's playing him like an irish folk ditty and like they're just hanging out and just like having like a really blissed out time, and like that's you you kind of get like early on you you kind of get the Lynch you're expecting, and then like very mm -hmm. very quickly like that that facade or whatever or that not not a facade because that's totally genuine as well, but like we you it, it you you feel it seems like you're gonna get Zen Lynch for five hours, and then mm -hmm. that's totally not how it happens. And I th I wonder if that was also like somewhat on purpose. 
Yeah, maybe. And I, there's also something fascinating, too, I, I found in, like, the first sort of bunch of hours watching this about how there's a really interesting way in which these these documentaries maybe work, yeah, again, against a certain kind of, like, mythos of Lynch as the director, but then ultimately maybe serve to reinforce it in the sense that, like, you know, we have, there's all of these kind of, like, stories about Lynch that circulate out in the world of, like, his his way of directing and these, like, kind of amazing, sort of insane, eccentric directions that he'll give to people and these become stories, right? Like about, you know, Renette Pulaski telling, saying that he told her to walk like a broken doll and, and, and you know, like those kinds of things, right? And, the, and these become these sort of famous things. And so you imagine... You know, you kind of build up this idea in your head of like Lynch is this sort of like mystical figure on set who's like giving people these strange sayings and it's all just this strange stuff. But then he's like, no, you're really mad in this scene. Yeah, exactly. And then you watch these scenarios and it's actually like really straightforward a lot of the time. His engagement with people, it's kind of hilariously straightforward. Like the first bunch of these hours of things, it's it's him literally just saying to people like, first you go here and then you stand here and then you say this and then this door opens and then you go here and then you go here. Like this is what a lot of the kind of directing is. And so that's fascinating. I mean, again, what becomes clear when you watch further into it is that often you know, he will give people these sort of very blank directions at the beginning. And then once they start shooting, Lynch will be, will be off set, like directing them through a megaphone. And that's often where like, it feels like more of the kind of sculpting of the performance comes in and Lynch will step in and be like, no, actually you should be hitting this line harder. You should be moving your hand here at this time. And that was, that was fascinating to watch Lynch direct people like at that specific of a level. Um, mm-hmm. Because uh, again, you, you hear so much about how he like he's so great with actors and he works so well with actors and like I, I'm not sure I was expecting that to necessarily translate to Lynch literally telling actors like which which lines like which syllables to hit harder in different lines. You know I, it, that was all fascinating. So that was super interesting. Yeah, and yeah. like the two other things, I just, specific things I wanted to mention is there's a there's a great little scene where he's sitting down with uh, Nepper and Belushi and like. Nepper, especially, who just seems like such a such a nice dude, is like yeah. they're 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 like sort of excitedly discussing like th- they were like off somewhere talking about their what they think their their character's backstory was like, mm. and like you just you just kind of get the sense that like this isn't really Lynch's bag. Like he does he does engage yeah. with them and he's he's friendly with them, but like it's it feels weird to have actors talk to him about like what they think the character background is because it's like it, 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 it just feels alien to the process and it's just, it doesn't, it's like not exactly. a natural mesh. The other thing I wanted to mention is like one of my other favorite uh, moments of direction also involves Belushi in the, uh, in the sheriff station when Belushi is just like utterly flabbergasted <laughs> with, by whatever is supposed to be happening. And so Lynch is just like, you're very confused. He's like, Oh, so like now, it's like yeah <laughs> exactly just like real life yeah no that was that was pretty great um it's true i well uh, man, i actually feel like if we just we would probably just let ourselves talk forever about all this stuff that i'm so fascinated with and all of this but but one last thing i wanted to point out that was kind of fascinating um a kind of fascinating revelation watching this like the onset documentary stuff was that you get a sense of like certain things that I had assumed were CGI actually being real, like in the the show that they were filming, which is amazing. So, for example, the set uh, towards the end when when um actually when now I'm blanking on when this happens. Maybe it's early on. I'm losing my mind. Where where is the scene in the scenario in the season where we're in the red room and the curtains blow back and there's the white horse? That's early on, right? It's like in the first yeah yeah. 
two episodes. So anyway, so when that scene happens and the, the uh, curtains blow back and there's the white horse and the, the floor seems to go off for infinity... To me, I just was like, oh, well, that's all CGI. Like, they just they just CGI'd that whole scene. Totally not true. The white horse is CGI. Everything else is real. They actually created a soundstage set that big that the, the floor, like, goes into shadow and the curtains blow back and it looks like it's sort of eternity or infinity or whatever, but it really just was a real soundstage. And yeah. I don't know, things like that. It just, it was, it was fascinating to see that. It was fascinating to see Lynch in, in I think it's the, again, maybe the Lazarica run or one of the Beamer ones where... um they're filming Cheryl Lee uh, and her kind of like exit from the red room in the early episodes where she's zoomed up out of the camera. And at first it, it wasn't that like she wasn't being sort of zoomed up off screen. She was supposed to kind of disappear down on this like sort of like elevator thing that's going down and, and Lynch hates it and like comes up with on set the idea that she should be going up into the air. Then they want to try to put her in a harness, but they don't have the right like stunt people and equipment. So they can't. And then it sort of drops off. You don't see what happens, but clearly Lynch then took that and went to post production and figured out a way to kind of zoom her up through CGI, which I, I don't know. I just found all of that fascinating to see his, this like thought process happening kind of materially as they're shooting was amazing. You had some other things you wanted to say about, uh, about sort of the form of the documentary. Yes. Yeah. And then, then we should probably start to wrap up. But um, the, I, the last couple of things I wanted to say about this was I just, I wanted to point out some things that I thought the, the director of it deserved credit for. One was he's doing some really fascinating stuff, particularly in the early half of the impression stuff with like sound editing and the way that he's actually putting together the footage of, of Lynch that I thought was quite smart. So, you know, things like he'll, he'll be directing, uh, Jerry Horn and he'll say, you know, like, oh, like first you'll see Jerry, um, shooting or rehearsing a scene where he yells out uh, and he's screaming in the woods or something. And then you'll see Lynch directing him again and he'll say, oh no, you do this, do this and do this and before that. And then you yell out and you hear Jerry yelling. Like, like it's, yeah. it's clearly just, it's, it's clearly just been replayed like into the scene. And so that's interesting. And, and he'll do things like that throughout where he'll kind of, um, He'll, he'll, you know, sound edit in Lynch talking from the next shot while Lynch is still talking in the current shot to create this kind of like frenzy that you clearly feel Lynch is sort of bringing to his direction around some actor or something like subtle things like that that I thought just were really sharp and like created a kind of really interesting flow and conceptually strengthened whatever the point was without being intrusive. You know, I, I liked that. But that just reminded me, sorry, of one more directorial thing I wanted to make sure that I mentioned, which is that. The scenes of Lynch uh, directing that little boy were so mm. great. <laughs> like the the way he just like talks him through like the stuff that could be scary or stressful. It's just like they, I that should probably be like shown in in, in directing classes on how to deal with kids. It is true. Although then there's kind of a hilarious counterpoint when they're trying to film the scene at the FBI station where the FBI people have brought in the wrong family and there's the three little kids that are like screaming and you get like five minutes of Lynch trying to get these like two-year-old kids to roll around in exactly the right way while making the exact right noise. And like Lynch keeps his cool. He doesn't lose his cool, but it is pretty funny watching Lynch trying to direct these like two-year-olds. It's <laughs> kind of amazing. But anyway, um, no, so the last thing I wanted to say about the uh, the structure stuff was I, I feel like we should maybe acknowledge a little more of these these sort of like opening kind of like ethereal narration sequences and how they relate to what's going on. So, you know, I, I will admit like when they first started and they, they first began, I, I wasn't so crazy about them at first. Like I think as you kind of intimated there at the beginning, Simon, like it, it feels a little bit like people trying to sort of operate 
like Lynch or like that they're sort of trying to do this kind of quote Lynchian thing and 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 it maybe doesn't always feel like it exactly works or something or it or it feels like um too obvious or something and what it's trying to do and and it didn't feel like to me I was like I don't know if this is really going to be that great but I will say it it like kind of grew on me and and part of it is I think I need to go back and watch them again like the, maybe the first time three you're so focused on just getting to the production footage that you just are like what is this like get to the production footage so I, I will say that I want to go back and watch them again but I will say that what I, I liked about it, like part of what grew on me about it was A, I had to get over what was maybe, I don't want to say unfortunate, but like a kind of a hilarious choice of having this person with the German accent read the narration because it's inevitable that it sounds like Herzog. Like yes, I can't help yes. it. It's like you have somebody making this kind of like, these like, oh, we are in the jungle and the, everything is strange. And it's like, of course it sounds like Herzog. It's like, it's impossible <laughs> that, that people are not making that connection. And so for me, that felt a little odd. I mean, it, I, I was like, maybe this is on purpose. You know, like Lynch and Herzog are basically contemporaries. They know each other. Like I was like, maybe this is this is purposeful. Couldn't really tell. Um, but anyway, once you sort of get past that kind of Herzog thing, then it then it works a little differently. And and what I did like about it was, I think it's at a certain point it becomes less it less it feels less like they are trying to operate in some kind of Lynchian mode, and more what they are doing is that they are kind of playing up this idea of. <laughs> I don't know. You know, like, like Dennis's book is called, uh, David Lynch, the man from another place. They're sort of trying to riff on this sort of sensibility of Lynch as, as almost an alien in his own kind of time and space. And like this idea of him having a sort of alien view on something. And so it's like th their narration is structured as if this figure is, is like an alien kind of force that's, that's coming in and witnessing all of this footage being filmed and everything happening from the outside as if there were sort of an alien being. And like, they don't make it quite that literal, but that's the implication. And, and then that sort of plays out in terms of, um, again, these very uncanny, establishing shots that they're shooting with the drones where they're, they're sort of zooming over either cityscapes that are made very unfamiliar by being shot directly from overhead or landscape sequences where again the kind of static nature of the moving camera is so strange and weird and I, I like this idea that like what they're trying to they, they're operating the same level of like you know making present-day America strange in the way that the return I think really does and I, I actually thought they kind of I thought that worked very well in terms of what they were doing. Um, and mm. like, I thought it was a good extension of an idea of what the show is after rather than just trying to mimic Lynch or trying to be like Lynch or something. So I liked that. I don't, I don't know. Does that strike you as reasonable? That I, I, I like your explanation of it. I'm not sure that the execution was always there. Mm. Um, and again, some yeah. of the, some of the specific choices were like a little bit, a little bit out there but um mind you i was i have to say i was distracted for a lot of what you just said because i was imagining what a herzog doc about lynch would be like <laughs> um and like and like they've uh, i believe that he had some involvement with my son my son what have you done didn't he produce he it? did he produced it yeah he produced it yeah people haven't seen my son my son what have you done you should go watch it or also if people really like the return they should definitely seek out herzog's bat lieutenant port of what yes. is it bad lieutenant new orleans port of call or whatever the full title is they should absolutely seek that out because i this is just occurring to me right now but that is maybe one of the few things that i think actually operates at a similar level to the return there's some really fascinating formal comparison stuff between Bad Lieutenant and The Return that we should probably talk about later. Yeah. <laughs> has, has anyone ever written about like her, like uh, that period of Herzog versus this period of Lynch? Because 
there's mm. like a lot of overlap there that hadn't even really occurred to me until just now, like these last few seconds. Yeah, exactly. Me as well. No, I had not thought of that. My son, my son, what have you done has some similarities too to to this kind of Lynch stuff as well. There's definitely some crossover, even terms, even in terms of like production style and schedule and shoots and everything too. There's some similarity there. Um, I uh, no, this is fascinating. Yeah. Anyway, I have a quick story about my son, my son, what have you done? Which is that I saw it. Um, so the first TIFF that I went to was that year. And mm-hmm. I, I went to a Midnight Madness screening of this horrifically terrible movie that I won't name here because it's just, it's needless slander. But it was like one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Okay. And I so I didn't get back to where I was staying until probably about three in the morning. And that's uh, probably more like four. And they, and so I, ha- I had a morning press screening of my son, my son, what have you done the next day at like eight. So I got maybe two and a half hours of sleep oh. and I schlepped over to, to this press screening. And if you've seen my son, my son, what have you done? That is not like, it's not a movie that you want to be taking like power naps during. I'm going to, I have a story to follow this up when you're done, Simon. So keep going. Cause this is perfect. This is too great. Anyway, keep going. Cause like, I'm sure you remember the sequence with Vern Troyer in the woods, like, or by the whatever. <laughs> No, um, oh, I to- I just sweared, sorry. Oops, yes, I do vaguely remember that. Okay, keep going, yep. Yeah, so I at, at a certain point, I did start to, like, nod off a bit, and when I woke up, it was a smack dab in the middle of that sequence, and I thought I was losing my mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, my story is actually hilariously similar. So when my son, my son, what have you done, played at Telluride, we... Uh, well, on the opening night of the festival, sometimes they'll they'll show uh, like staff films on the opening night, so that we you know aren't trying to like get into the same films as all of the rich people basically are trying to get into. And on that opening night, they showed staff some film, like there was some early film first. But then the idea was that there was going to be like a double header, and we were going to watch um, my son, my son, what have you done afterwards. But uh, we were waiting for Herzog to introduce it, and he was like tied up, and he he'd been de- delayed leaving Venice or something, so he didn't get there till quite late. And then he got there and did this introduction and it was like long, but who cares because it's Herzog, so it's great. But the film didn't actually start until, I don't know, midnight. Like it was supposed to start earlier and it didn't start till like midnight. So it was super late. Everyone, the staff have been killing themselves all day, running around getting this festival going, blah, blah, blah. And I remember the film starts and it was like a joke. It was like the lights go down, the lights come up on the screen and I turn around and everyone in the whole theater is fast asleep. Like five people had immediately fallen asleep during the screening of what have you done and and i like held it a little longer than everyone else but as you say i basically slept off and on through the whole thing and that movie is not a movie that you want to be waking up in the middle of and like out of a dream and you're like oh my god is that an ostrich and michael shannon and like I don't know, a, a cliff and Willem Dafoe. Like, it is it's crazy. And, and like, but anyway. even, even if you're completely lucid, like, the line readings make you feel like, why, oh why is this? And, <laughs> and Grace Zabriskie's in it too, right? Grace Zabriskie yeah, plays his mother. Oh, man, there's some good stuff in here. We should, now I really want to go back and watch both of those again, like, next to The Return. I really want to do that. Uh, well, maybe maybe when we have our next guests on, we can suggest that or something. Or we yeah, can so, have watched. Them sorry for that, like it, like long tangent that won't be of interest to like if you're not one of the seven people who watched <laughs> my son, my son, what have you done those, without those falling asleep films. for some portion of it. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, they are fun films. But all right, anyway, I think I, I think I have said mostly my piece about this. And I think again, like the idea is, is that we might end up covering some of this stuff again when we have our our actually more official roundtable podcast at the end here with our with our guests. Uh, knock on wood, and we will talk uh, maybe again about some of these features at that point. So. Looking forward to that, and hopefully all scheduling things happen the way that we want them to, and, and that should be coming in not too long for our for our very devoted and lovely listeners who, by the way, I miss. I miss having the podcast a lot. I miss getting to talk to Simon every week about Twin Peaks, and I miss our lovely listeners. So it's nice to be back, even just briefly, for this conversation. Now, I have one more question, which is that, are you going to see Star Wars for Laura Dern? Because I am. Uh, I think I'm going to see Star Wars because uh, Olivier works for a company of nerds and they rent out a theater and show it to the staff. So we're going to go for that because it's free. But I will be very glad to see Laura Dern, um, who, by the way, is like getting all this awesome attention right now that I'm very happy about. They're about to do a um, full retrospective of Laura Dern, like, or maybe not full, but a big retrospective of Laura Dern cinema at Lincoln Center in New York. She's going to be there. There was a theater in Boston that just did a big retrospective of Laura Dern stuff. She's like getting all of the good responses that Laura Dern should be getting because she's amazing. And I hope that she wins all of the things. And, and I know that they're submitting the Twin Peaks people for like the... Um, Golden Globes. I think they missed the Emmys for this year, but they're submitting them for the Golden Globes. So, like, I just, I hope they win things. I mean, I, I feel like the critical, again, we, we said this early on that we were worried that, like, the general critical response was not going to be able to handle something as crazy as the return. And I am still pretty pleased that, like, that hasn't really turned out to be the case. That even fairly mainstream kind of critical publications are very much behind this show and are really supporting it. And so I really hope things like, awards who I don't personally I don't care about but I know they matter a lot to like the economy of of these kinds of things I hope that they do the right thing and and give some love to the return I just hope that they just to piss everyone off they submitted it for all the movie categories and all the miniseries categories and all the series categories That would be awesome. Um, in my dream world, David Lynch wins a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor. In, uh, yes! <laughs> <laughs> He's been submitted. He was one of the ones that they submitted. So You, you know, actually, know. that's the last thing I'm going to mention is that you don't get really Lynch the actor in the... Um in the features either. that's that's true you don't get as much of that as as one might like but um i don't know it's true well we we just have to keep watching the return and, <laughs> and right, someone yeah. someone someone out there who's like an engineering person you guys you have to get on building simon and i this app where we can just like feed the return into it and play it on a never-ending self-generating loop that would yeah be can amazing. i just get like an ocular implant for that <laughs> hook it to my veins <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right yeah time time to go unfortunately time to go yes it is time to go uh you should follow kate on twitter at cinnamon what's your instagram by the way oh god knows i think it's kate renabom i have no idea <laughs> I'm, I'm never on there like your i feel massively bad when the... popular instagram <laughs> when when mclaughlin shared me i like i don't know i i had to I, I like had not even looked at it in ages, so I, I had to go back and fix it. But I will say again, just as a shout out to how awesome McLaughlin is, when he first announced that I had won on Instagram, he I don't think he knew what my handle was, so he just put it up. So like people weren't actually really finding me. And then to McLaughlin's credit, like two days later, he went back and edited the post to include my handle. Like I didn't ask him to do that. He just did that. And I was like, he's a nice guy, man. That's a, that's a quality person right there. He's a very nice boy. 
Um, Indeed. So yeah, you can find me on Twitter if you want uh, at Hollow Minds, and that's it. Check out Sorted Cinema, who are hosting us graciously as always. Um, we're going to be putting up our lists, end of year lists soon. So I know everyone. I don't actually like lists, but everyone else does. Uh, so <laughs> I guess there'll be some of those soon. I'm going to have to start putting together a film ballot, um, which is frustrating. But anyway, uh, yeah, so we do, We owe, as as we've said, we do have one more plan. Don't expect it till the new year. Um, I'm going to say optimistically mid-January. So, you know, please don't hold your breath. You will die. And have a happy holiday season, everybody. Yeah, happy holidays. Bye. On the 12th day of Christmas, my sweetheart gave to me. Twelve cups of coffee. Lemon cherry pie. Ten Julie Leo. Nine owls talking. Eight dancing midgets. Seven one-armed men. Six fish and a percolator. Five dozen donuts. What? Four talking logs. Three possessed souls. Two secret diaries. And a body. Dead. Wrapped in plastic. Amen. Oh, Amen. Oh,